Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, when wine was before him, I picked up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad before in his presence. The king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why shouldn't my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates have been consumed with fire? Then the king said to me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may build it. The king said to me, The queen was also sitting by him, How long will your journey be? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set a time for him. Moreover, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house that I will occupy." The king granted my requests because of the good hand of my God on me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly because a man had come to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. I arose in the night I and a few men with me, I didn't tell anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There wasn't any animal with me except the animal that I rode on. I went out by night by the valley gate, even toward the jackal's well, then to the dung gate, and inspected the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down, and its gates were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the spring gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal that was under me to pass." Then I went up in the night by the brook and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The rulers didn't know where I went or what I did. I had not as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come. Let's build the wall of Jerusalem that we won't be disgraced. I told them about the hand of my God which was good on me and about the king's words that he had spoken to me. They said, let's rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they ridiculed us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Then I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, no right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. We learned that in the very last sentence of the last chapter. And I actually wonder whether they split the chapters in the wrong place. Because they finished the prayer in the last chapter. Then there's this one sentence, I was cupbearer. I reckon that should have been in chapter (laughs) 2. So it's all Stephen Langton's fault. He split the Bible up, you know, 800 years ago. Anyway, 
It turns out he's a cupbearer. Now these cupbearers were interesting guys because they were a person that the king trusted with his life. So there were always threats on kings. If you could assassinate the king, there's a good chance you could become the next king. So kings in, in ancient times were always on the lookout for someone trying to get rid of them. And of course, an easy way is to poison their food or poison their drink. So they had people who they highly trusted who were cupbearers. And uh, there were all different types. Some cupbearers would, you know, would have a, they would not only pour the drink, they would have a taste of the drink while the king watched. Um, and then some of them would also um, be responsible for keeping care of the, the knives and forks and plates. And they basically, uh, you know, sometimes there was more, more than one. Some would look after food, some would look after drink. There were a variety of different types. But Nehemiah was one of these types that the king trusted. He trusted him so much that he trusted him with his life. Because if you know you're the cupbearer, you're prime position to poison the king. <laughs> you know, you could uh, do something sneaky, I'm sure, and you could get the king. But so, um, and apparently when I was reading up about cupbearers, there was a, a, a King Sargon. I don't know if I wrote it in my notes here. But King Sargon had lived um, before this period, like way back, um, back in the early Akkadian period. I think this is like, you know, thousand years before this, I think. And Sargon apparently was a cupbearer and he actually did something to the king that he was serving and he became the king. So, you know, this type of thing did happen. But Nehemiah is not like that. He's a highly trusted individual and he's the cupbearer. But as in that position, you're someone that's seeing the king on a daily basis. You know, we know when we read the Esther story, well, which we haven't done in the Bible, but for those of you who know the Esther story, she's the wife of the king, she's the queen and yet even she didn't get to see the king on a daily basis. And, um, but here we got a guy that is seeing the king regularly. Every time he wants to eat or drink, which is multiple times a day, Nehemiah is there. So the king would know him fairly well, and he would know the king fairly well. And on this particular occasion, he's sad. Now, why is he sad? Well, we just did chapter one yesterday, and he's sad because the burden for Jerusalem is on his heart. He, he heard the news that the walls are broken down and he's burdened and he went to prayer. But he's been carrying this prayer for months and um, it's, it's getting to him. like it's, it's burdening him down and finally it's gotten to the point where he can't keep it in and the king notices. Now I wanted to say about this that that's a picture of prevailing prayer right there. And um, because we are supposed to, to take a hold of prayer we're supposed to take it into our hearts and pray to it to such a point that the king will notice. Now, in our example, the king is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to carry it and it's supposed to burden us and change us to the point that once the king notices, he will issue a decree that changes something. And now, of course, the king, our king, the Lord Jesus, he's not, you know, mean-hearted. And of course, he knows what we're going through, but sometimes he doesn't answer prayer in the first day or the first hour of, you know, sometimes when we pray a prayer, it's answered instantly. Thank God for that. It's very encouraging. But sometimes the Lord waits. And the reason he waits, there could, there's many reasons why he waits, but one of them is that the prayer changes us. Soren Kierkegaard, he's an interesting character. Um, I, I'm not sure that I completely agree with everything he thinks, but Soren, um, he lived in the 1800s. He, he had a lot of things which he said, which just seemed so profound. I remember visiting um, the Oral Roberts University 
and uh, they've got this prayer room there and it's an amazing prayer room it's this tower that goes up and on the top there's this huge round thing like a kind of a flying saucer and you go up the elevator and you're up and you're looking over the whole Oral Roberts University and you, you can just sit there in prayer and in silence and it's got Soren Kierkegaard quotes up there and they make you really think and um, I remember that when I was there and that's what brought him to my attention was seeing these quotes a few you know back in 2015 and uh, one of these quotes was something like this it was you know that I thought prayer was talking but the more I prayed the quieter quieter I became and soon I realized that prayer is listening it was something like that you can google it to get the exact quote but I thought wow listening now that's prayer <laughs> really profound and, uh, but Soren, you know, he has lots of quotes. Google, and there's so many thoughtful things he says. And one of the things he says is that prayer, the thing he observed about prayer is that it changes the person who prays it. And uh, so, you know, we often think of prayer as changing the thing we're praying about. You know, in this case, Nehemiah is praying about the walls because he wants the walls to change, but he himself is changed. So you can see how it does both. It changes him. It touches his heart, he's moved, he becomes a different person and that's what prayer is supposed to do. So some prayers are answered quickly and it may be that there's no reason why not to answer it quickly, but sometimes prayers can't get answered quickly because there's resistance, spiritual warfare, perseverance. Some prayers just take time. Like you, you, know, you pray, for example, for a baby, you got nine months right there. <laughs> some prayers just take a while to get answered. And some prayers are supposed to change you. And so there's a process at work. And that's what happens here. And, and we need to take the burden of the church, the burden of you know people we know that are unsaved, and pray for them with care and with a heart and with perseverance until we get the result. But in the process, we are changing as well. Our hearts have to be moved. So the king notices, the king says, what do you want to do? And uh, he says, Lord, give me permission to you know, go to Jerusalem. The king wants to know the details. How long will, it, how long will you be gone? And um, I have a thought about this because as, as a pastor, and if you're a pastor listening to this, you'll identify with this, but you often get approached by people, you know, I'm going to say multiple times per year, maybe even every month, with people who have a great idea for the church. <laughs> if you're in a bigger church, you probably get approached all the time. And people come along and they say, let's pick an example, they say, I think we should start a, a small group for, um, you know, for X, Y, Z reason, you know, to reach to a certain type of people. And, and they'll say things like, I really feel like the Lord wants us to reach out to, let's say it's people with English as a second language, you know, as an example. I think we should start a group. Well, whenever I hear someone say something like that, the first thing I think is, if the burden's on your heart, you're the one to do it. Because <laughs> you can't, as a pastor, you can't possibly do all the things that everyone thinks the church should do. You're a kind of, a, as a pastor, you're a kind of a overall coordinator for all the things that the Lord's trying to do. But in the end, your main role is to, is to lead people in prayer and to teach them the Bible. So, you know, we see that in the apostles, you know, they the church was growing and it was getting busy and, and they said that we've got to appoint deacons because we can't neglect the ministry of the word and the prayer to do these things. So that's really the role of pastors and church leaders is they've got to be focused on the word of God and prayer and then 
practical things or day-to-day ministries like Bible studies and small groups, you know, if you have a bright idea, it's probably because the Lord wants you to do it. Almost certainly. So Nehemiah has this burden, and but he realizes that the Lord's given him the burden so he can do it. He realizes that, but a lot of people don't. <laughs> so if you've got some bright idea on your heart, maybe the Lord's calling you to serve. But don't go serving off as an independent person. No, serve the king by doing it under authority. You know, and if you're in a local church, you do it by serving in your local church. You know, under submission, your pastor and your leaders will have wisdom for you and guidance and advice, and they'll want to know the details, so work them out. So the king says to to Nehemiah, what are the details? How long will you be gone? Nehemiah obviously works it all out. We're not told all the details here. And uh, he puts it into place, and the king approves. So off he goes, goes to um, Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he finds that there's opposition. So he meets these people called Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gershon, or Geshen, the Arabian. One's a um, Sanballat, oh, I didn't write it down here. Um, Tobiah is an Ammonite, Geshem is an Arabian, and I, oh yeah, Sanballat is a Horonite. So I don't know what a Horonite is, I know what an Ammonite is, because that was the land across the Jordan, the city of where Ammon, Ammon Jordan is today, and we all know where Arabia is. So various commentators have different things to say about these three people, but uh, it seems like they all agree that these were significant local politicians. Um, one of the theories is that this sand ballot was the governor of Samaria. So at different times through history, the province of Judea, or you know, like going back a little bit, Israel broke into two countries, you know, Judah and Israel, Israel at the top, Judah at the south. But after exile, various people governed, and at different times, it was all under one administrative territory or was broken up into different administrative territories. By the time the Romans come along, you've got Palestine, but you've got Judah, Idumea, Samaria, Galilee, and all these different little areas that the Romans are in charge of. But here in this particular moment, it seems like there was one province called Samaria, which included all of Jerusalem and Judah. It also included, it was a big province, included a big area of land, and one of the commentators suggested that Sanballat was the governor. So, can't prove that, but possibly what's happened here is you've got Nehemiah that's come from the king with an order, but he's come into an area where this governor is in charge, and the governor probably feels, possibly feels, that they're being threatened because... The king's doing stuff that seems to be undermining the process. You know, the process is normally you tell the governor, the governor's in charge. But this bloke just turns up with a letter, wants to rebuild the walls, and it seems all a little bit, uh, uh, you know, not sure. So anyway, either way, whatever the truth is, they're not in favour, and they seek to oppose, and they start out by just saying nasty things. And this is always the way. When we want to do something for the Lord, there are people who oppose. Now, um, uh, we find this often in local churches. Thank God we don't really find this at peace. You know, we, it's not like we all are clones here and we all have one mind. We don't. We do have different opinions, but we somehow manage to love one another and get a great deal done, even though we don't all think the same. We're not all robots, but we cooperate. And, uh, but I know that's exceptional. 
I know in a lot of congregations, when someone has an idea, there's almost always someone else that doesn't like it. <laughs> and um, so, and sometimes it's because people feel threatened, you know? So you might, a pastor might get someone who's, who's a talented musician and put them in the band, but then other people in the band, they're now feeling threatened because they're feeling like they're not gonna play as much or the tension's being taken off them. There are often a lot of human things that go on in churches. And um, it's part of maturing as Christians, learning to love and respect one another and allow room for other, and others and even want others to be raised up and even support them. And we find that by serving and giving, it actually, it actually helps us anyway. Um, but in any case, whatever the story here is, these guys feel threatened and they attack. And it's very, very easy to think that the people are the enemy. <laughs> In the Bible stories, they are the enemy. The people are the enemy. And, you know, Nehemiah is going to pray some prayers later on, and we'll talk about them, that we would consider those prayers nasty prayers. If they were prayed today, imprecatory prayers, you know, the type of prayers where you want your enemies removed and destroyed, we wouldn't pray prayers like that today. But if we if we realize that our enemy is is not flesh and blood, it's principalities and powers, then we can treat people with much more respect and cooperation. But in the meanwhile, we're, we're working to break the power down of the things which sow division into the church. So um, in this chapter, we see that, that when you have a burden for something, it's not enough to just pray. You need to be willing to do, which Nehemiah does, and you also need to as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Nehemiah chapter 2. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that all these years ago there was a plan to rebuild the walls and I pray, Lord, that there would be a plan now to rebuild the walls of the city of God, the church. And I thank you, Lord, that there is a plan. You've put it in place. You're raising apostles and prophets. You're causing the church to love one another. Help us, Lord, to cooperate with your plan, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.